Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The word of the Lord. If you uh, have not been with us over the past couple of weeks, we are in a series on the vision and values of Christ Church Vienna. I'm Johnny Kersina, the lead pastor here. And if you are visiting, that's what we're talking about this month, uh, is basically our core principles, the things that drive and guide us. We talked about being gospel-driven, and then last week, externally focused, and we're going to continue talking about being an externally focused church today. So one of the ways that we, we, what we mean when we be, talk about being an externally focused is that we think that the gospel is central to life in such a way that every person in the world needs gospel transformation. And so we are seeking gospel transformation in our lives and in the lives of all people. And towards that end, we want to be involved in the lives of people that are um, not just inside this church, but those outside of the church. So in our neighborhoods, in schools, in places of work, wherever we are and, and go. And we think the good news of Jesus Christ is something worth sharing because Jesus Christ crucified and risen is our only hope and salvation. And when we started Christ Church Vienna, that was one of my key visions. I wanted to be a church that was reaching out to people who don't go to any church whatsoever that we would always have that as a part of our mindset. It wasn't always the case for me as a minister, though. I, about 10 or 15 years before starting Christ Church Vienna, I was working at a church in Richmond, and after a couple of years working there, I realized something. All of my social circles, all of my friendships, everywhere that I went for work as well as for play, it essentially was within the church circles. I was only interacting with and spending time with fellow Christians who just did Christian-y stuff together. And then I needed to get a job. I needed to get a second job, that is. So I got a job at Starbucks, working Monday through Friday, 5 to 9 in the morning. And you know what I found at Starbucks is the, the people that I worked with there didn't, didn't go to my church. And they didn't even like church. And they weren't sure they liked Christians either. But I became friends with them. And over the course of, of that year, I became good friends with a number of them. One guy in particular was this very large guy. He was, he was younger than me, but he looked like an offensive lineman, but with more tattoos. And, and he was kind of scary and gruff, especially at five to nine in the morning. One day I was at work, um, or it was, I was at that Starbucks and I wasn't working, but I was just reading the Bible, preparing for something. And he walked up and said, what are you doing? I said, well, reading the Bible. He said, what are you reading? And I said, Romans, sit down, let's talk about it. And so we sat down and talked about it, and I gave him that Bible and said, why don't you read the rest of it and let's talk about it tomorrow? So he did. And then I said, well, maybe read the Gospel of Luke, and when you're done with it, let me know. We'll talk about that. Well, two days later, he's ready to talk about the Gospel of Luke. And over the course of a month or two, we were interacting back and forth on kind of things of who Jesus was and what he came to do. 
His brother fell out of a three-story apartment window, his older brother, and was in the hospital with severe damage, and he called me. Can you come to the hospital and pray? A couple years later, I moved to England with my family, and um, lo and behold, one day I get a phone call, landline back then, and he's on the other end. He said, hey, I'm in England. I'm in Bristol. I've come to stay with you. Hey, Sarah, we got a house guest for a few days, and he's very large and has tattoos. He was good with kids. And a couple of years after that, he asked me to officiate at his wedding. Simply leaving the church circles and engaging in friendships where Jesus was present was transforming my heart and his. And that's what I want us to be about as a church to be externally focused is to be for people, advocates for, aware of, people who don't agree with the things that you think that you should already. Those who don't go to this church or any church should be a part of our heart at all times. Because that was Jesus's heart. Did you know that? Jesus was an externally focused kind of guy. And it got him in trouble. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, grumbled about it. And in Luke 15, Jesus, in response to their grumbling about him spending time with people outside of the church, if you would, tells three parables. The lost sheep, which we read today, and then the next parable directly after it is about a woman who loses a coin. And then the parable after that, all part of the same time, is the parable often called the prodigal son, but it's really about two lost sons, a father who has lost an older son and a younger son. But in this case, what I want us to see, to start off with, is that the, the background, the setting for all three of those is what happens in verse 1 of chapter 15, where we read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Now, if, if you've been in churches, we've talked about tax collectors, but tax collectors were worse then than they are now. And part of the reason was because a tax collector in that day and age was somebody who was a collaborator with the Roman imperialists. Rome had come in, conquered the people of Israel, and they got tax farmers to come around and basically bid on, you need to bring $100,000 in next year. Well, they didn't have to tell the people how much they had to bring in. They could use the Roman sword and take as much as they wanted for themselves and give Rome $100,000. Tax collectors were betrayers to the nation, to their own race and ethnicity, and to their religion. And sinners, this other term that's used, was sort of an all-encompassing word. Sinners meant people who broke God's law, the Ten Commandments, and those sorts of things. They were the immoral and irreligious they were the ones who were condemned in their lifestyle and actions. And what's really interesting is tax collectors and sinners were often put together. And here's what you would know. Tax collectors and sinners would have avoided the Pharisees, the religious leaders, as like the plague. But they were all, it says all, they were all drawing near to him. Not just a few of them thought he was interesting. All the tax collectors and sinners wanted to be around Jesus to hear what he had to say. So, you know, the kind of, if you were just kind of taking just this story, you might think, well, he must have been saying what they wanted to hear. He must have been saying nice and easy things, but he never was. Jesus was incredibly, incredibly inclusive in a way that none of us are. 
welcoming anyone and everyone, but he was also incredibly exclusive in the things that he said and demanded and challenged. Think about it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So he's saying not only the Ten Commandments are still here, do not murder, do not commit adultery, but I'm taking it a step further. It's not just your outward actions I care about. I care about the motives and desires of your heart. He was even more challenging morally than the most religious person in his culture. And yet, he overthrew their their expectations, right? The woman caught in adultery is a story told in the Gospel of John chapter 8. The religious people bring this woman caught in adultery and are ready to stone her, execute her for her uh, breaking the law. And Jesus says that famous line, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. All the religious people ready to stone her drop their stones and walk away feeling convicted. But he doesn't then say to the woman, hey, look, I know that they just went and caught you in your bedroom. And, you know, two consenting adults, who am I to judge? He actually says, Go and sin no more. He's incredibly inclusive because he brings her in and protects her and covers her from the executors. And he calls her to a new life of transformation. Jesus said some of the most challenging and exclusive things. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to God the Father except through me. And yet, tax collectors and sinners want to be with him. Why? Because he was not actually preaching a gospel of good works, of moral uprightness or pull up your bootstraps. He was preaching a gospel of grace that was available to every single person, not just for the religious and rule keepers, but for any who saw their need of Jesus and what he was offering. And so outsiders were continually intrigued and drawn to Jesus. And we see this, if you read through any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, with who connects with and is drawn to and is transformed by Jesus, and who has no idea what to do with him or gets as far away from him as they can. It's the outsiders, the immoral, the non-religious, who get Jesus and connect to him, and it's the religious the culturally acceptable, the insiders who do not. In Luke chapter 7, a sinful woman, which basically means a prostitute, the town prostitute, a prostitute comes and begins to wash Jesus' feet at a dinner party with her hair and with expensive ointment. This prostitute is welcomed by Jesus and her life is transformed. Meanwhile, the host of the party is Simon the Pharisee, which means he was a rabbi, a pastor, And he is appalled by this and has no idea what to do with Jesus. In Luke 18, the rich ruler comes to Jesus. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I've followed all the commandments. The rich young ruler was good by every standard the culture had. He was a respectable citizen. He followed all the rules, did all the Ten Commandments. And he walks away from Jesus' challenge to him with his head downcast because he doesn't know what to do with Jesus. A chapter later... Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a true outsider, he is the one who meets Jesus and is completely transformed and gives away half of his wealth and becomes a totally new person. 
In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who is also a religious leader, in fact, one of the highest religious leaders in the country, a senator, if you would, in the religious circles, he meets with Jesus and is confused by Jesus. And a chapter later, Jesus is in Samaria, the hated lands of the people of Israel, and he comes across a woman at a well, the Samaritan woman at the well, who is there because she is an immoral person and an outcast in her own community. She is an outcast among outcasts, an immoral, irreligious, and she is completely transformed. Time and again, the religious insiders, the good people, don't get Jesus. And the outsiders are the ones who continually draw near, respond to him, and are transformed. And for this, the Pharisees get a little upset. They say in chapter, in verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, Pharisees and scribes, if you don't know what those are, a Pharisee was basically a, a rabbi, a pastor. They were the, the teachers in the local communities and the synagogues. They were incredibly well-respected, and they followed all the rules. Scribes would have been legal experts, kind of theologians or something like that. These were the upright the moral, the religiously observant. In that culture, they would have been the most well-respected person in the community. And they begin to grumble at Jesus. And when you see the word grumble in the Bible, you can translate it as a nearly legal accusation or indictment. It's not a It is, this man is doing these things and we're ready to bring charges against him. And what was the basis of their charge or what was underneath it? On one level, it was something like this. These sorts of people are coming to your church services, and they won't come to our church services, so something must be wrong with you. But here's what's really going on underneath it. It's an incredible challenge to them what Jesus is doing with these people because he's receiving them and eating with them. And that, that word eat with, we've talked about that here. To eat with somebody in a Middle Eastern or first century Jewish context had sacramental and covenantal overtones to it. It meant when you ate with somebody, you were accepting them on a very deep level. So Jewish writings of the second and third century said you were not allowed to even eat with a Gentile, let alone a true sinner. But Jesus is not just doing that. Actually, what the, the Pharisees say, the word that they use is they, he receives them. Okay, now there's, there's two words in the Greek um, that are basically to receive somebody. One is the basic word receive, which can either mean um, you kind of let somebody come to you, you'll talk with them. If they invite you to your, you'll sit down and talk with them. But actually the word that's used here that the Pharisees use has a preposition added to it, which basically means it's, an emphatic way of talking about receiving. And it means that Jesus is being proactive in the act of inviting people in. He's offering hospitality, extending hospitality to tax collectors and sinners himself. And that word that's used actually here means to accept, to fully accept as a brother or sister, it's to be friends with somebody. Jesus doesn't just go to the tax collector's house. He actively goes out of his way to include them in his life. I actually think he's friends with some of these people. That is what makes them so upset. But that is also at the core of Jesus' master plan. 
Jesus' master plan was to transform the world in the name of the kingdom of God, to reveal the good news of himself come to the world to bring salvation and hope to all people. And his master plan for reaching the whole world was friendship. He was friends with his disciples, Peter, James, John, and the others. And he was friends with the irreligious and the outsider, the tax collector and sinner. And that's our calling too, to be friends with all people. How does friendship develop? Friendship develops, actually, it starts with common interest or a season of life. So both of you are into the same sports team or the same band, or you both like reading medieval fantasy novels, or you're both in the same season of life with little kids and diapers and a lot of crying and little sleep. And you become friends with somebody through those common interests or seasons of life. But what happens to develop friendship is you actually spend more time with them. So you spend time with them weekly or daily. You are in the same office as them, or they have three classes with you as well as lunch. And so you have more time with them, and that more time translates over time. So it's not just you have a lot of time with them for a couple of weeks. You have more time with them week in and week out for years. And then those friendships become very good friends to the point where you you don't just enjoy the common interest. Like you're not just interested in the band, you're interested in them, and you enjoy them. You start remembering and thinking about all, you, you know their idiosyncrasies, the way that they snort when they laugh, the way that they tell a story with their hands. You know the things that they'll get excited about, and you'll watch a movie and think, oh, she needs to see this. She would love it. Because to develop friendships is to be known and to know and to not be rejected for all your weirdnesses. When you have good friends with somebody, when you're good friends with people, you, you, you don't have fronts anymore. You can be silly with them. You do things with close friends that you would never do in a public setting, certainly not in a church. You could be grumpy with your friends. If your friend, a good friend, comes over to your house and you're in your pajamas, it's okay. You let them in. And when you're over at a good friend's house, you don't ask what's in the fridge. You open the fridge and start taking things out. That's what friendship is about. When friends are together, one phrase, one simple phrase can conjure up all sorts of stories and memories and laughter. Friendship at its root is selflessness, vulnerability, commitment. And we are more ourselves when we have and are with good friends. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing with his disciples, with tax collectors, with sinners. And so you'd have to ask if Jesus, instead of walking around in the first century Palestine, was in northern Virginia today, where would he go during the week? What things would he do? Well, on one level, here's what I would say is, would he go to church? Yes, Jesus would have gone to church. He went to the synagogue which was their version of a weekly church service. He went to the temple on high holy days. He observed all the religious things. So he would show up at a church service. He would go to his Wednesday small group. But he wouldn't just stay in those social circles like I did a number of years back. He would go wherever people are outside, people that he worked with. He would hang out in places where he would see other people. He'd go to the Vienna Inn and sit at the bar. He would go to the Hawk and Griffin and be there on trivia night. He would get a drink at Cafe Amore and talk to the barista and the person sitting next to him. He'd be at the high school on a Friday night for the game. And my guess is if Jesus was around here and working, he would be invited to the happy hour 
with the rest of the guys. The neighbors who were having poker night would say, yeah, we're going to have Jesus come, and he would have gone. And that's what I want for us as a church and as a people, as an ethos, to be present in the community around us wherever we live. And as a church, to be constantly aware of those people who don't necessarily buy into what you buy into, who aren't in this church or any church. And that's one of the reasons why I want us to be aware of how weird it is even just to come to a church at all. So it is actually really hard to show up in a church service. Uh, I had a friend who uh, moved away but started coming to Christ Church Vienna, and a couple months into coming, he said, you know, I have to admit, the first time I showed up at, at church, I was just scared to death. He said, I hadn't been in church since I was a teenager, and, and it's like, I don't know where to sit, what to wear, and then you stand and start singing, and then you sit down, and then you come, I don't know, I, I knew I was going to stand out. He said, I'm just aware that everyone's going to be aware that I don't belong here. And I thought, oh, goodness. So I was trying to think through what's an equivalent for me. And this is what I came to. It would be, if I had a friend who had a Harley Davidson and invited me to go to the biker bar he goes to on Saturday nights in Hagerstown. And eventually I'm like, I guess I got to go with him. But you know what I'd be thinking the whole time? I'm like, I'm going to be going to a biker bar in Hagerstown, Maryland. I mean, Maryland's bad enough, but like the bike. <laughs> How am I? Can we do one in Virginia? But the whole time I'd be thinking, what do I wear? Like, you know, I've got, I've got this nice J. Crew blazer. Should I wear that? <laughs> I got boots that are sort of like, well, they zip up on the side. They're more like city man boots. I don't know. It's, I would pull up in my Camry, you know. Like, what am I going to talk about? Yeah, the sound of a Harley is pretty awesome. I got nothing else. I don't know what to say, what to wear, what to do. That's what it feels like to show up in a place like this. It's weird. Everyone's going to know. It's one of the reasons why from the very beginning and still to this day, we wear name tags. So there's no insider, outsider, even inside of this place and recognize that whether you've been here for 13 years or this is the first week you've ever shown up in a church in your life, that there's not like everyone's just trying to figure it out. It's why we try to explain what we do and not assume that you should know exactly what we do. We even use language slightly different. So technically in my denomination, I'm either a vicar or a rector, but I call it lead pastor because at least that language is slightly more accessible to anyone. Try to avoid insider language or even assume that you have knowledge of the Bible. People have it all over the place. Look, we're going to be an Anglican church, so we're going to do some things that are unique. We're going to be centered on the Bible. We actually believe the Bible is God's word. We're going to talk about Jesus, and Jesus alone is the way to salvation. But never assume that anyone else has prior knowledge of any of this or agrees with you. And do the same when you're in a small group. Don't assume other people that show up at a small group have prior knowledge of the Bible or agree with you on anything theologically or politically. It's an awareness of others that Jesus walked around with continually. Our goal here is not to point people to Christ Church Vienna. It's to point them to Jesus and the good news that he came to bring. 
And in that sense, there's a way of thinking about it that, that I've thought about for years, which is, in a sense, we're all on a spiritual journey, right? And at some point in that process, you cross over from death to life when you put your faith in Jesus Christ crucified. But the goal is to continually go towards heaven until we look more and more like Jesus Christ. And my desire is to keep going that way, but I don't know where you are. I don't know, even if you've been here for 10 years, whether you're still over here trying to not sure what you're going to do with Jesus, or if you're way ahead of me. And either way, here's the way I want to think about it is, let's go this way. I'll pull you, push you, you pull me, you push me, let's go that way. And so I don't have to figure out where you are along the lines of, of Jesus. God knows, I don't know, you may not even know, but let's go that way. Let's keep going towards Christ, towards eternity. Yes, put your trust in him. Why? Why should we all do this? Because the gospel is clear. Every one of us is a lost sheep. Jesus tells the parable to remind us of that. He says in verse 4, what Jesus' answer to them was to tell three parables, and the first one is this. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, the very first part of this, this parable that Jesus tells uh, would have been very offensive to, um, to the Pharisees and confusing to all the listeners. Because the, the language that Jesus uses here um, is not allowed in Middle Eastern common talk, in Middle Eastern idiom. Middle Eastern idiom does not allow for the speaker to blame himself for something that has happened. Jesus should have saved the face of the person who had the hundred sheep, kind of pro provided a protection for them by the wording that he used. But it, what he said was, if he has lost one of them, and that's the wrong wording. What Jesus, so it's, it's like this. Let me explain it more simply. Um, in Middle Eastern idiom, you don't say, I missed the train. You say, the train left me. It's the train's fault. Not I lost my keys, but my keys went from me. So instead of saying, Jesus shouldn't have said, if he has lost one of his sheep, he has lost one of them, he should have said, if his sheep went from him, or at, at best, if his sheep was lost to him. But Jesus is intentionally breaking with the common speech patterns to place blame on those who should have been in charge of the sheep, the Pharisees. And what he's doing is he is going back. He is referencing something they know, Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God brings judgment on the leaders of Israel who were supposed to be the shepherds of the sheep Israel. But instead of caring for the sheep, the shepherds are feeding themselves and not the sheep. The sheep are scattered, and the shepherds have not gone to look for them. They've not gone to look for them and bring them back and care for them. And so God brings judgment on them and says, I am going to come as the shepherd. He says in the verses that we read, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep 
and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I will seek the lost, he says, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God is the good shepherd who will go after the sheep, bring them back, care for them, feed them, provide for them. And Jesus is claiming, I am the true representative of God's heart and God's purposes. I am the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 in your presence. As one commentator put it, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you lost your sheep. I went after it and brought it home. Don't you realize I'm making up for your mistakes? Quit complaining. But are we any different than the Pharisees? You know, over the past decade or so, a number of books have been written on why there are fewer people in church and why people have rejected Christianity in the West. Um, I've read most of them. And there's a number of reasons we're increasingly secular culture. Um, the, the moral teaching of Christianity is out of touch with the, the general vibe of the Western world. Christians, because of the church, have been filled with a lot of scandals, horrible things that have happened in the name of Christ or inside of churches. Political identification with particular political parties has caused people to push away and say, I'm not sure I can buy into this. But regardless of when any of these books are written, in the past 10 to 15 years, all of the surveys, whether they're done in 2010 or 2023, say this, people outside of church circles think Christians are by and large insincere. They maybe want to be friends with you, but only to get you to come to church. They are self-righteous and hypocritical, and they are judgmental. And oftentimes this is true. I went through a long season of my life um, in my teenage and college years as somebody who was very judgmental. And a lot of it was because my Christianity was performance-oriented. I didn't fully grasp the gospel of grace. I continually thought of my standing, my status before God as based on my religious performance. And so if you asked how I was doing in my faith, it would be measured on the basis of my devotional life, what we called back then quiet times, how many quiet times in a row had I had, my attendance at church, young life, small groups, whether I out-attended everyone else, my basic biblical knowledge, could I memorize no more things than other people about the Bible and the theology of stuff, and how much I could avoid doing bad things compared to other people. And that, that's really at, at root. When you don't get the gospel of grace, you're constantly comparing yourself. And so I was judgmental towards other Christians who were not as strong as I was, didn't attend as often, didn't know as much. And I, by and large, try to avoid people who were not Christians. The ones who were in the party circles, drinking, smoking, anybody with a heavy metal t-shirt, Years later, I was in a gathering with a bunch of my high school peers, people who knew me in high school, and a number of them through the, through the evening would be interacting with me, and often in the midst of a conversation, they would start apologizing to me about what they were doing right then, a word that slipped out, their drinking, 
And I just felt so sad. Because I thought their view of me is that I am judging them right now. And their view of Christianity is it's about being good or bad and they clearly don't measure up. That's what I had been telling them with my life and my actions for four years. So what would enable us to be the kind of people, a church, where sinners are drawn to us like they were to Jesus? It would involve authentic humility, a life of integrity, generosity of spirit, and actual love for other people. And for that, we need the gospel. <laughs> Jesus invites the Pharisees and us to rejoice with him. In verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know what's great about this is that that last sentence um, is a false statement because it doesn't exist and he knows it. There will be more celebration joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Such a person does not exist. There are no 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. The entire message of Jesus, the entire time he was around, was repent to everyone, to the religious and the irreligious, to tax collectors and rabbis. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. I am here bringing something new. Repent. We all need repentance because, as Jesus makes clear, we are all lost sheep. When we get that, it enables an authentic humility because I don't think I'm better than anyone else at any point ever. I recognize I am as equally lost as you are, if not for being found by the shepherd. Jesus redefines repentance, not as kind of confessing the bad things you've done, but as accepting being found. Because the parallel he puts is, um, the sheep that's lost is found. The sheep is found. And the same thing is true of a sinner who repents. So a sinner repents is like a sheep that is found. The sheep doesn't return halfway. And then the shepherd said, okay, you've come halfway, I'll go get you. The sheep doesn't admit much. The sheep is simply found and accepts being found. To repent is to admit that you are lost, and to accept the rescue of the shepherd. And hear this, in this parable and in all three, God values every one of his sheep infinitely. He values you infinitely. He wants you to be with him. He loves you. And at great cost to himself, Jesus came to find you. Will you accept being found? And will you rejoice? That's the theme, the emotion, I'm sorry, of the entire parable is joy. In verse 5, the shepherd finds his lost sheep and rejoices. And then he returns home and says to his neighbors, rejoice with me. And I tell you just the same way, verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus is inviting the religious leaders, the religious insiders. He's inviting us to join him in reflecting God's heart the outcast, the lost, the sinner, to search for the lost, and to rejoice when any accept being found. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, at great cost to yourself, you left your father's home and found us. And you are offering through grace to bring us to your father. Speak to us, not just in conviction, but in hope and joy. The joy of the loving father, the loving shepherd, who brings us to himself. In whose name we pray, amen.